Hey you, yes you, thanks for tuning in to the Healthy, Wild and Free podcast. My name is David Benjamin, I'm your host and the founder of HealthyWildAndFree.com. If you're like me, you understand that health, the mind, body, spirit, heart connection, and living a green, eco-friendly, sustainable lifestyle are some of the most valuable and life-enhancing lessons that we can learn and pass on to our children to live happy and abundant lives. That's why this podcast was created, to help you grow in these areas. If you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to HealthyWildAndFree.com, click the box at the top right-hand corner to get a free copy of our latest ebook, and you will be subscribed to be notified about future podcasts. Thanks for subscribing and tuning in. Enjoy. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Benjamin from HealthyWildAndFree.com, your host of the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. Today on the show, we have a guest who's going to be talking about paleo, the paleo diet, and what it means, and how it can help you in your health and wellness journey. His name is Jason Seib. He's a husband and father to three magnificent daughters. He's the author of The Paleo Coach. He's the owner of the Clackamas Physical Conditioning, of Clackamas Physical Conditioning in Oregon, I hope I said that right, and partner on the Everyday Paleo Team with Sarah Fragoso. After his wife and three little girls, fitness and nutrition are unparalleled passions in his life. He'd prefer to read studies and scientific articles than do pretty much anything else that might occupy his time, with the exception of applying his knowledge to help people reach their goals. He takes great pleasure in playing the role of the heretic. Mainstream nutrition and fitness are so badly broken that the scientific truths about health fitness, and weight loss are near mere opposites of accepted, quote-unquote, common knowledge. And he loves helping people find those truths. Uh, Empowering people with much-needed new perspective is how he gets his kicks. And his success rate with the frustrated fat loss crowd is proof that life is good for for this fitness and nutrition geek. I'm going to put him on the call right now. And Jason, are you there? Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Early in the morning hey, here, but uh, sorry. Thanks for, thanks for joining us so early. I know it's like 7 a.m. your time, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So I kind of wanted to start the interview out with asking you, um, how did you originally uh, get into the health and, and kind of fitness realm and, and space? What kind of interest did you it in it originally? Oh, um, well, I... Uh, I guess I, I was in dire need of a life change myself. I'm, I'm one of those kids that was, uh, I was a bad kid <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was a teenager and, and, uh, I just needed a, a change of space in my, in my head and my habits. And, um, I was about 20 years old, I guess. Uh, I had a, a, uh, bodybuilder, quite successful bodybuilder by the name of Pete, take me under his wing and uh, show me how to work out. And I was about 135 pounds at the time. And um, I, uh, I, I just really needed to be some someplace else doing something different. And I glommed onto it like uh, like no tomorrow, just decided that uh, fitness and, and immediately after that nutrition were going to be my new thing. And I uh, I never really turned into that uh, that gym rat, I, I kind of right out of the gate became really interested in the science, and the, the the facts behind this stuff that it just seemed like nobody really knew, and uh, started reading studies right away, 
taught myself how to read studies. That was uh, not a fun adventure, but after a few years of effort, you, you start to understand without a without a medical degree or a science background how to read studies and look at statistics and things like that. And um, I think that, uh, like I've said numerous times in uh, lots of different interviews, that I think that if you just aren't uh, if, if if you aren't so attached to your your biases that you're willing to to look at information, you know, kind of subjectively and just you know really or objectively and just really look at it and say, you know, what what does this mean and how does it apply? I think eventually all roads lead to paleo. So um, I think how I initially got into it was just you know my own personal psychology needing needing some a new avenue. Uh, and then uh, from there, it was um, it was kind of a, a, a lifetime of a progression. Now it's been about well, let's see, I'm going to be maybe 40 next year, so it's roughly 19 years that I've been avidly pursuing more and more information in the realms of fitness and nutrition. So that's does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And, and so it's kind of it kind of came out as a uh, sort of an outlet to uh, to learn and grow, as opposed to. Uh, go down another path that could have led somewhere not as beneficial for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a, by nature, I'm just a really passionate person. I'm just one of those guys that, you know, I, was, I had, uh, had a lot of trouble in in school with any subjects that I didn't really, I wasn't really interested in. And if I was really interested in it, I'd get the highest grade in the class. Um, you know, I have a relatively high IQ, I guess, compared to the the general public, but it's really hard to teach me anything I'm not interested in. So I, I had to, I had to pursue something I was going to be passionate about. I wasn't going to be one of those guys that could go to work day to day at a job that I half-heartedly liked in order to be able to pursue my passions on the weekend. It just wasn't right. going to work out. So that, yeah, I hear you. It's not for me. I hear you. Same yeah. here. Uh, so, so paleo. So, you kind of, uh, based on kind of the research you did and, and the studies and whatnot, uh, it basically kind of led you to understanding paleo. Is that kind of what happened then? It just kind of led you to that. Yeah, and I, I just, like I said, I just, I think that if if you aren't married to your biases, it just works out that way because nothing really makes sense when it comes to um, when it comes to human nutrition or actually any kind of nutrition or exercise. When when you don't consider our you know the evolutionary processes and natural selection and all the things that, that create a species, you know I mean um, it, you know it's been said that nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution, and so it's just this this perspective of you know let's isolate individual problems and fi- try to find ways to treat these individual problems and in, in treating symptoms and or or even just you know this kind of um, looking at everything under a microscope as far as your point of view and saying, you know, I'm overweight, why am I overweight? Let's address this weight thing. Well, it must be thermogenetics, things like that. You just, or, or, or uh, thermogenics, and you just, you get like this point where you're, you're not asking big enough questions. You know, your questions are just too small. You're just, you're, you're, you're not asking what does it take to make a healthy human anymore. You're asking individual questions and trying to address individual problems. And, um, you know, I mean, you end up in a situation where I talked about in my book where you're, you know, oftentimes people are, are um, you know, whittling on their finger and they're looking for a better Band-Aid. And what they really need to do is put the knife down, but they can't they can't figure out the problem because the questions they're asking are way too small. They're not addressing 
this this grand scheme of what what does it take to be a, a a human in peak health? What kind of inputs are involved in that, and what kind of things negatively affect that? Is it just nutrition? Is it just exercise or sleep and stress involved? You know, there's these big picture questions that I think just keep people from reaching their goals. And uh, in reality, it doesn't make any of this process any harder. It just means your perspective has to change and then things fall into place for you. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of people, it's it's kind of, I think it's partially the society we live in. You know, we have, we're used to microwaving things and, and you know, flying from one side of the country to the other side of the country in the day. So we have this, like, very snap your fingers and everything happens right before you kind of mentality, whereas the bigger questions obviously are, you know, taking a step back and looking at our whole body as a system, that, and there's a lot of little systems within that. Um, so that does make a lot of sense, and I think that's a great kind of mindset shift for people to have that are looking to improve their health. Uh, yeah, talk- it, it, it's interesting that, that we, you know, our moms have got us all convinced that we're these unique little snowflakes, and, and we it just <laughs> it's just crazy how hard people resist this concept that we're animals, like just deal with it. <laughs> like right. nobody would ever, ever think to take any animal out of the wild and shove it in a zoo, make sure it hardly can exercise at all and give it roughly 40% of its natural diet and, and then stand there and wonder when this thing turned into a, a, a piece of crap health wise. You know I mean? That would just right. never cross anybody's mind, but I'm not an animal because I'm, you know, I have a sentient mind and I can, and I can build things, and I can and I can go to work and watch TV and and listen to music. So none of those rules apply to me. It's just it's it's ridiculous. I mean, like we we don't we're not baffled at all by the stuff we see in nature that we when we apply to us we're completely confused by it. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's it can be really frustrating to try to convince people that like you know there isn't any infectious disease or, or I'm sorry non-infectious disease to any statistical significance anywhere in the animal kingdom, anywhere in the anthropological record, or anywhere in indigenous hunter-gatherers today. It's only in, in, Western, in Western humans. So what should we do about that? What do you think is the cause of that? Well, clearly the cause is that you're, we're not taking enough drugs. See, that doesn't make any sense at all when you say it that way. That's an asinine statement. But if you said those animals don't have those diseases because they take enough drugs, that is even more of an asinine statement. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, Adding all this logic up, you know, to back to your question about how did I end up here, it just, it, it's, you kind of have to end up here if you start asking the right questions and you stop staying, you know, keeping your blinders on and you start asking these big picture 30,000 foot view questions, you end up at a place where you go, you know, I bet heart disease is not caused because our bodies aren't manufacturing enough statin drugs, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, sorry, sorry, that was my tirade on that. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Uh, so basically, it's just really, for you, it's kind of looking at nature, looking at the animal kingdom, and basically mimicking that is what it comes down to. I think that's what paleo basically is. Paleo is, is you know, I, I said it in my book, I don't like to use the words the paleo diet because people immediately associate it with a diet in in the sense that, you know, we we do diets. We we go on diets, and we're the only creatures on the face of the planet to do that. We're you know everything else has a diet, and so I think that 
you know, rather than doing another diet and pushing that diet button like he did with Atkins and the zone and, you know, whatever other soup diet, whatever other completely unsubstantiated crap happens to be going around, um, you know, let's start asking what it takes to make a healthy human and, and, and stop dieting. And so um, the unfortunate part is when you ask people what is the human diet, they're, um, they, they take kind of a short view on it and their, their mind starts wandering through the aisles of the grocery store thinking about what foods are healthy in there and um, and that, you know, that grocery store is a relatively novel idea in, in human history and if you want to go back to any kind of trade at all, you still have to have the agricultural revolution which is, um, you know, 10,000 years ago and that's a flash in the pan compared to how long your genome has been under development by natural selection. So, um, when we put ourselves back into that that model and we say we got here the same way every other living creature got here as far as how our species ended up this way, um, maybe the things that we're the most adapted to are going to be the things that are going to be the most help, uh, helpful to us. And um, you you end up at, at paleo, but not necessarily the paleo diet because I know it sounds odd to say it, but especially coming from someone like me who makes my money in this industry, but I don't think diets work, even the paleo diet. I've seen it fail countless times when people took a set of rules and said, what is the paleo diet? Oh, well, it's don't eat this and do eat that, and they apply those things to their life, and then they don't get the results that they've seen on some other people. It's because they're not asking the question, how do I get as healthy as I possibly can? They're asking the question, what are the rules that I need to follow so that I can do this diet the way I've done every other diet out there? So um, I probably just totally confused your listeners, but uh, we'll clear, <laughs> well, clear that up. No, this, this is good. I, I like that you kind of took that path because it it leads me to wonder, you know, with the you know the paleo diet, quote unquote, and then the the whole you know following of the rules. Uh, there, that's kind of like a separation, if you will. You know, some people are following the rules, and then for you, it sounds like paleo is kind of a, a lifestyle, if you will. So. Yes, it's yeah. part of your diet, but it's more of a lifestyle. So can you expand upon what is the, you know, paleo lifestyle? And then what, I guess, I mean, there's got to be some rules that you kind of have that I, I would say would yeah. kind of benefit everyone to some degree, right? Right. Well, I, I think that the, the there's a couple of perspective changes. And on the sort of rules front, um, you know, first off, all the stuff we've been talking about and what does it take to make a healthy human so, I mean, to touch on those first, obviously, you know, the, the basic guidelines of paleo is that we remove these Neolithic foods that don't really um, promote human health. And, and you know, it, just because something isn't on the list of what, you know, quote-unquote cavemen could have could have uh, gotten in their into their systems doesn't mean that it's necessarily an offender. It just means that it needs to be examined very closely and hopefully, you know, with long-term data. Um, so, you know, I mean, the basic general guidelines would be no grains, legumes, dairy, high fructose corn syrup, refined sugar, soy, vegetable oils, things like that. Um, you know, there's caveats in there. You know, um, fruit is generally considered healthy. Fruit is probably not a good idea for metabolically broken people who have lost and regained weight over and over again and struggle with their nutrition. Um, dairy is not on the paleo list, but we don't have a lot of data saying that fermented dairy is really a problem for very many people. And it looks like milk probably is a problem for most people for things like growth promoters, um, you know, IGF-1, things like that. And it, uh, casein, lact uh, lactose, 
So, um, you know, I mean, you need to get a little bit of an education, but there's tons of people out there that are willing to give that to you. Um, Rob Wolf's book, uh, Sarah Fragoso's uh, Everyday Paleo, my book, The Primal Blueprint, all of those are places where you can you can learn those general rules. And beyond that, um, the other three major inputs are sleep, uh, stress, and exercise. And for exercise, you've got to be moving like a human, and um, that requires another major perspective overhaul because um, cardio is not something that humans would have done a lot of in nature, and it tends to cause more problems than benefit when it's done as your primary source of exercise. So, um, you know, sorry runners, but, you know, I mean, I'm going to give the example I always give. There's nobody at the starting line of a marathon that any of you have ever wanted to be built like. There are emaciated little people who are going to win, and that's their sport, and I don't have any beef with them. That's great. They, they're, uh, they're doing this because they love running. Everybody else is up there because they think that their running is what's going to make them healthy, and all of them think that if they just keep adding mileage, if they just add a little bit more mileage this week, they'll finally lose that midsection fat, and uh, it's not going anywhere. And um, so, I mean, my clients all, uh, and I think the majority of the clients of the, of the people who also train in the paleo world, um, and, and just for the record, it drives me crazy when people are uh, cashing in on the uh, on the paleo nutrition thing and don't really have a clue about exercise. But uh, moving along, um, they, my clients lift heavy and walk a lot. Uh, 70% of the women in my gym deadlift over 200 pounds, and um, that's irrespective of age. Uh, my average client is female and, and over 30 years old. I currently have, I think, at least two women in my gym over 50 who can do strict pull-ups and uh, multiple women, numerous women over over the age of 50 who are over that 200-pound deadlift mark. Most of those women are around the, well, anywhere from a size 2 to a 6. So uh, we aren't creating gigantic women, but we are creating very strong women. And then they walk, and they walk a lot. If a client comes into my gym and they tell me they're walking 30 miles a week, I'm stoked. I mean, they don't have to be walking that much, but I would be happy about that. If they told me they were running 30 miles a week, I'd probably tell them that they need to find a new trainer. Um, and then on the um, on the uh, sleep side, uh, you know, you, you need at least eight hours, and a little bit more is better, and those have to be during the hours that humans are sleeping. Uh, midnight to 8 a.m. isn't okay. Uh, if you're missing sleep because you need to find out, you know, where the good sales are on Facebook because your friend bought a, you know, an awesome pair of pants that you need to find um, at, at 11:30 at night, you're, you know, you're you're putting your your desire to uh, stay connected through social media above your desire to lose fat. Uh, missed or broken sleep for just one night in numerous studies has is, is been capable of producing the same amount of uh, insulin resistance as we see in, in type 2 diabetics. So if you are sleeping badly and everything else is dialed in your life, there is a very good chance that you're still going to end up hitting a wall and not be able to reach peak health or maybe not be able to make any real any real substantial changes at all right out of the gate. Um, because some people are hyper-responders to that uh, that poor sleep situation. And on the stress management part, it's you need to acknowledge the fact that you live in a world where very, very little of what happens to you on a day-to-day basis that causes stress in your life has anything to do with survival. 
and the huge majority of stress in in your life if you had been a hunter-gatherer for the last 2.6 million years would have been directly related to survival. So your body doesn't understand that, um, you know, sitting in a cubicle with a boss that hates you and the guy next to you plays his music too loud and your relationship's kind of tough and you're not 100% sure if you're going to be able to pay your car payment, your body doesn't get that all of that isn't basically you just being chased by a tiger really slowly all day long. Um, so you're, uh, you're producing stress hormones all day long, namely in the form of cortisol. When that book burns out, it'll turn to adrenaline, and then you'll eventually get adrenal fatigue. Those kinds of stressors must be dealt with because your body is clueless as to what's causing them and how come you can't get away from them. And uh, my recommendation is usually uh, meditation. I like a book called Eight Minute Meditation. Uh, that guides you on how to do that in eight minutes a day, which absolutely every single human being on earth can make time for. Please don't lie to yourself and tell, you, tell me you don't have eight, eight minutes. And um, it comes from a very, very scientific approach. There's absolutely nothing spiritual or religious in it at all, which means it can apply to absolutely anybody with any set of beliefs. So all of those inputs, I have seen any one of those inputs completely dismantle the entirety of somebody's goals. And I'm not kidding. Like somebody with perfect sleep, perfect food, perfect exercise, watch stress hit them like a ton of bricks and put 30 pounds on them while nothing else changed. So um, if you're discounting any one of those things, you're probably doing a diet or you're on an exercise plan and you have all your eggs in that basket. And um, if you do, I think you need to expect very limited and temporary results. Does that cover it? Yeah, definitely. I like that you mentioned uh, sleep as well because just recently I've actually kind of recalibrated my sleep schedule to, you know, getting to sleep early and waking up earlier. What time would you recommend that uh, people get to sleep? Like what what when do they recover best basically? As far as sleep goes. I think 10 I think like 10 to 6 is a good minimum, but I mean if you can get to bed earlier or sleep a little bit later, that's great. But I think if you're staying up much later than 10 o'clock, for most of us, where most of us live with our, you know, uh, dark and light cycles, um, you're, you know, in the U.S. anyway, you're not going to, staying up much later than that is really extending your daylight with artificial light quite a bit beyond when the sun went down and, um, and you can start messing with cortisol cycles. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that can mess with a lot of things. Growth hormone, you know, your cortisol is off and you go to bed with a little bit too high of cortisol, chances are your insulin is a little bit high because your cortisol's job is to dismantle muscle protein and create glucose through gluconeogenesis. That's going to release some insulin. You've got insulin in your bloodstream in the second and third stages of sleep. You're not releasing growth hormone, and growth hormone is the fountain of youth. And so especially for ladies, if you're not lifting heavy weights, because um, that's the other place where you release quite a bit of growth hormone. Uh, if you're not lifting heavy weights because you're afraid you're going to get too big, your uh, majority of your growth hormone is being released uh, in those second and third stages of sleep, and you want to make sure that you don't have insulin in your bloodstream there, which means you know, big carb-laden meals right before bed aren't a good idea, and neither is a lot of stress. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, I like that you mentioned calories, too, because that's something I, I thought was really interesting in your book, that uh, basically, what was it? It was re- decreasing, was it decreasing calories, releases cortisol, and then muscle is catabolized because of that, so protein can be used as blood sugar. Is that what it was? 
Yeah, yeah, that's the same gluconeogenesis. So, like, yeah, I mean, caloric caloric restriction can work if it's really moderate, but the way we're taught to uh, reduce calories, I – it's unfortunate. Um, Jim Laird had, uh, agrees with me on this. Jim Laird, J and M Strength and Conditioning. He was recently on Rob Wolf's podcast as well, and we're, we and I just hung out with him at the Ancestral Health Symposium. It's funny. We just have identical um, views on this. And I mentioned him because he and I are, are uh, some of the very few people that are in this industry that are you know writing and talking that are actually still in the trenches training people on a day to day basis. And I just refuse to quit. Um, but he and I are both in agreement that we um, we just never, ever see women, especially. I know it sounds like I'm picking on you ladies today, but I do. My vast majority of my clients are, are females, and this is this is where I think I do my best work. But the um, the vast majority of women that come into my gym, and I'm, I'm talking like 9 out of 10 come in. They're not – maybe more – um, are not eating enough calories when they come in. And the typical range is 1,200 to 1,400 calories. If uh, women have ever had any kind of um, concern over any period of time in their past with losing weight, uh, you know, they're immediately taught that this is about calories. And so caloric restriction starts, and then they kind of condition themselves to that and settle into this point where they feel like they're full around 1,400 calories. And, um, there's a study that I found earlier this year, and I think it had actually been out a year or two, and somehow I missed it, that um, they took these subjects and reduced their calories to 1,400, reduced them down to 1,400 calories um, for eight weeks, and then whatever weight loss they uh, they got in that eight weeks, they, they uh, increased the calories just to be able to maintain that. So it was only eight weeks. I imagine the calories were were able to come up quite a bit from there. And they maintained that that amount of weight loss for a year. And at the one-year mark, they were still seeing um, a a decreased metabolism, a slow thyroid in in these people. So basically what that meant is these people dieted in the traditional sense of dieting for eight weeks. And a year later, they, they still had bodies that were trying to be really efficient at storing fat. So when you decrease calories enough to make it look like stress, your body's response is, and this happens whether or not you do it by eating too little or exercising too much as far as like something like cardio um, or even, you know, like a lot of CrossFit. When you're, when you're either burning too many calories or not taking in enough, your body will downregulate your metabolism between these stress events to try to keep you alive. It's going to go, okay, well, you know what? We, these stress events hit on a regular basis. There's this, this planet that we live on obviously sucks. We, what we need to do is make it so that when we don't, when we aren't out moving fast or when the calories do come around, we store as much as we can and we move as slowly as we can. So we downregulate the metabolism and you don't have any energy and you've got a body that gets really great at storing fat because it's, it's trying to keep you around through these, this crazy stressfulness that you're putting it through. So, um, you know, if you were... If you if you had your paleo completely dialed and every other aspect of your lifestyle was just completely in place and you were looking to be like a figure competitor or something, I could see redu- reducing calories maybe 100 calories at a time and then reducing that down for a few weeks and toying with that and seeing what happens. That's not going to cause stress. But if you go from like a 2,000-calorie-a-day diet down to a 1,400 or even worse, a 12, and sometimes people come in and they're eating less than 1,000 calories – I, you're, when you decide
decide to get healthy and you give your body back the food that it needs, you need to expect that you're going to have to gain weight, and I mean gain fat, before you get back to a place where you can be healthy and, and have, you know, a sustainable, lean body, a body that looks great for a lifetime. Otherwise, you know, this this caloric restriction that you've been on for a long time is eventually going to burn you out, and you're eventually, even on those same calories, going to start getting fatter, and then you'll go to the doctor to ask him what's going on, and he'll check your thyroid out, and he'll say your thyroid's slow, and he'll give you a, a drug to kick your thyroid to make it, it uh, produce better, when really it's just doing exactly what you've taught it to over the years. So it's a frustrating process because, you know, you condition yourself to this, and then to get out of it, you've got to give your body back what it needs to get healthy again, and you're not just you know, in a conversation with our bodies where we can say, hey, you know what, body, today I'm going to start giving you everything you need to be healthy. And your body just goes, oh, thank God, let me just push the fat loss button over here. It's still freaking out, and it took you a while to convince it that this was a, was a tough place to live with all the stress. It's going to take you a while to convince it that those stress events are gone and that it doesn't need to store fat anymore. And the, but then once that happens, the, goal, the, the goals that you reach, the, the, the things that you accomplish are sustainable. So we have to stop dieting like we're shooting for one-night stands with all this yo-yo dieting where I'm going to do whatever it takes to look really good for the next, uh, you know, two weeks before I gain this all back. Or I'm going to, to, you know, not really be happy with my body and never get to where I want but I'm better than I used to be, so I'm going to keep this caloric restriction going on until I completely break my metabolism. So um, right. there was another rant, another rant for you on a subject that <laughs> really just gets my goat. I mean, I, it's it's a problem, and it's hurt. This information is badly damaging women, and it it, it breaks my heart. But it's a really tough fight because this stuff is so ingrained into these women that I you know. I've had clients, I'll ask them, are you restricting your calories at all? Well, no, you know, and I won't have them total up their calories just yet, and then they'll finally come back to me and say something like, well, you know, I never eat until I'm full because that's just not what you do when you're trying to lose weight. And it's like I just, you, you want to grab them and shake them and go, no, you're hurting yourself. Please, you've got to trust me and get on this, you know, six months to a one-year plan with me and stop thinking that two weeks from now we're going to produce results like Weight Watchers did because you never got to keep those results anyway. And right. let's get you really, really healthy so that when you get back into that bikini, you can stay in it for the rest of your life if you want to. It will, you will always get to look like this, and it's pretty freaking fantastic that you can beat the crap out of your body for a couple of decades and then fix it in a year. That's astonishing to me. I just think that is a a miracle of biology and, and biochemistry, and yet it's just never going to be fast enough for anybody because, like you said earlier, we're used to getting that headache and taking a Tylenol and it goes away. You know, you want dinner, you throw it in the microwave, push a button, 30 seconds later you're eating. So, yeah. again, more perspective shift stuff. It is reducing is caloric restriction, could that otherwise be called uh, starvation response, or is that a little bit different? No, it's pretty much starvation response when it comes to that that the, the type of caloric restriction that we see in in, uh, in virtually everybody. By the way, caloric restriction is is preached as a as a diet method. You know, we're taught right. to believe that that um, the only thing that matters is calories, and you know, um, uh, you've got the law of thermodynamics saying that calories in has to equal cal calories out or stored calories, and uh, and so if you're not burning those calories, it's all getting stored as fat, and it's just 
the, the oversimplification of that process and applying that to the human body is is nothing short of absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's just there's so expand, much going on. With that. Yeah, can you expand on that a little bit, calories in, calories out, and, and that process and, and why that's not true? Yeah, well, I mean, the, without getting really scientific, the general concepts are that, you know, um, the first law of thermodynamics, I think I said that wrong in the very beginning of your podcast, but the first law of thermodynamics says that calories uh, or energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be uh, transformed to another form of energy. So in other words, um, fat would be considered potential energy. It's stored energy. It's fuel. Um, Or, you know, when when you use your body or, you know, systems in your body, your mitochondria take whatever... Uh, you've brought in protein, carbs, fat, um, feed them into the, the, um, the carbs and fat, mostly feed them into the mitochondria, use those to create ATP through the Krebs cycle, that thing we all t- tuned out in, in biology class, and uh, ATP being adenosine triphosphate being our, you know, the currency of energy for humans. Um, and then uh, that, you know, if we don't expend enough of that, then, then it all ends up stored and I mean, the bottom line is there are varying degrees of um, there's varying degrees of of, uh, of what it takes to create ATP through what uh, sources of energy you took in. Like, um, and and then these things are affected differently in digestion, and they're you know they're affected differently by our various hormonal states. For example, when insulin's in your bloodstream, you're basically holding your fat cells shut and using glucose for energy. So you've got glucose in your bloodstream, and glucose is, is not allowed to hang out in the bloodstream. You can't, it's toxic if it gets too high, too low. Your body spends a ton of energy keeping glucose within a very tight range. It does that, mitigates that with insulin. So um, you can't afford to have your cells, like say, for example, your muscle cells, virtually any cell in your body, they all need energy. But say, for example, your muscle cells, you can't afford for them to gobble up fatty acids out of your fat cells if glucose is around because you need them to gobble up as much glucose as you possibly can to get that glucose out of the bloodstream. Fatty acids are not toxic. Glucose is. We've got to get rid of the glucose first. You know, the medical community and, it typically, and, your, and your typical dietitian or nutritionist wants to tell you that glucose is the preferred energy source for the cells. I think most of us that really understand those concepts would would argue that it's not the preferred energy source, it's the source that must be used first. Uh, And a type 1 diabetic will tell you all about how closely monitored glucose needs to be in your bloodstream. So if any glucose that isn't used up um, in a a meal um, by your cells that that are, you know, hungry and going to use it for energy, will be shipped off to the liver to turn into triglycerides for storage, or some of that can be turned into glycogen, the stored form of glucose, which is stored in the liver and in the muscles. There's a limited amount of that that you can store in the muscles. You can get um, quite a bit of it crammed into the liver, which can eventually cause problems. But um, you, uh, most of it's going to get turned into uh, triglycerides for storage. So your carbohydrates are what you, it, the vast majority of the fat on your buns and thighs is made of. Those were originally those fat cells were originally uh, carbohydrate molecules from you know your whole wheat toast and oatmeal you ate in the morning as opposed to your bacon. So um, when when insulin's in the bloodstream and that glucose must be used up first, the fat cells are being held shut. So for example, trudging away on a treadmill, sucking back a Gatorade 
is keeping your fat cells held shut if you're not consuming enough energy in that Gatorade to actually have the, the uh, you know, glucose be enough to feed that whole exercise process, then cortisol is released and you're dismantling muscle protein in order to make more glucose. And at the end of the result, you very well may see the number on the scale go down. But you're, you're, if, if that's what's you're becoming you happy, weaker. Right. Yeah. And what, yeah, if that's, what's making you happy, then what you're shooting for is weight loss and I don't think anybody on earth should ever be looking for weight loss. We're looking for fat loss. And in my book, I show you an example of how uh, my client, Deb, went from, um, I think, a size 12 to a size 6, if I'm getting that right, um, and stayed 155 pounds. And you can see the side-by-side pictures in my book. Um, so, I mean, do you want to, to, to be a smaller size and look great, or is what's important to you making that number on the scale go down? And if you just want to make the number on the scale go down, then starvation and cardio is not really a bad idea for you, except that it will catch up on you and you'll gain it back. But you definitely temporarily can make that number on that scale go down. Um, unfortunately, you are a member of a species that judges each other visually, and nobody's ever showed up for a blind date at your house and asked you to step on a scale so they could tell whether or not you were attractive. So, um, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, um, virtually every woman I've ever trained, if I asked them, would, would you would, would you like to be a size four? Yeah, that'd be great. Are you willing to, uh, you know, if there some of them were size sixes at the time, and I'll have to say, would you like to be a size four? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, well, are you willing to gain weight? Oh, no, no, God, no. Wait, no. Well, what if you have to gain weight to be a size four? And then you can watch little parts of their head start to explode. Because, like, it's that concept just doesn't make sense in our yeah. modern thinking. It needs to. You have to shake that scale addiction off. And this plays into that whole calories in, calories out ther- uh, thermodynamics thing is that when you're, when you're using the right uh, substrate, the right food for, um, for the right inputs to make energy and the processes are working right, it's ne- it, it doesn't need to equate to exactly the same thing as when the processes are working wrong. You know, when you eat fat, for example, those fatty acids travel through your entire lymphatic system. It's really a slow process before they're in your bloodstream. And when you eat glucose, glucose is in your bloodstream nearly immediately in some cases. And if it's not gobbled right up by your cells, it doesn't take very long and it's been shipped off to the liver to become fat. And it's destined for your, your, uh, your, your uh, fat cells so you can gain weight in fat. And, um, you know, whereas that, that fat, that slower trickle of fat coming in is calories if you're, you know, moving properly, could much easier be turned into, um, you know, muscle mass. And, and uh, you know, and then protein, of course, is, is, a, is a big component of that too, but you can even overeat protein. And so uh, all of these things are processed a little bit differently. To act like we're just dumping gasoline into a tank and expecting a gauge to go up to a certain point and to get exactly that amount of miles out of that, it's all just ridiculous. It's, it's for people who don't want to try to understand these systems. Interesting. Yeah, it's... It, it, I like how you worded the, uh, you know, if, if you want to, you know, reduce or go from a size 12 to 6 or whatever, would, would you be willing to gain weight? You know, it's very counterintuitive because we kind of equate weight with shape. and But really, physique, you know, muscle weight is more than fat, so we have to keep that in mind. And it's really, really everyone's going for physique. You know, we could care less about what we weigh as long as we look the way we want to. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, but it's 
as far as glucose goes, is there anything you can do? Like for me personally, uh, I've started to pair, like when I have fruit, I'll pair it with something that kind of balances blood sugar levels. Is there anything that you do or recommend that won't kind of spike insulin and, and cause the liver, you know, fat and that kind of thing? Uh, just to kind of keep the blood sugar levels balanced so that glucose doesn't have its as negative effects overall? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not we, – we don't really need to vilify glucose and insulin. They're, I mean, they're a normal part of human physiology and biochemistry, but we, we – um, it's about the proper food choices. The thing that's wrong with the standard American diet, the way, you know, virtually all Western cultures eat – is just that we consume an an impossible amount of carbohydrates with impossible glycemic indexes throughout our day, like all day long. Um, you know, in our seminars, I kind of draw out a graph where I talk about you know you're you're um, you're eating the 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 diet that you're told to eat by Jillian Michaels and Dr. Oz, and you get up in the morning and you have you know um, oatmeal and whole wheat toast, and then you know you're that gives you a, a spike in glucose with an accompanying spike in insulin. That comes crashing back down about mid-morning, and that's where you're falling apart. So you go grab a, a, a fat-free caramel macchiato at Starbucks, and you know at least you're not eating the fat, so you should be good. But then you spike all that insulin back and glucose back up again, and it comes crashing back down around lunchtime. You're using all, losing all your energy again. And that's when you go have a Subway sandwich because Jared lost a bunch of weight eating Subway, so that must be the way to go. In the middle of the afternoon, you're crashing again, and so you grab some candy off of a neighbor's desk. You know, you'd never have a bowl of candy in your own desk because you're you're health conscious. Or maybe it's a granola bar or a bagel or something that's got to be, you know, good for you, and you, you jack that back up. And then at dinner, you're having, you know, chicken and whole wheat pasta or something like that. It seems like another healthy choice. But all day long, you've had these insulin spikes. Every time insulin started, started to deplete, that falling insulin singled, signaled hunger. So you're eating all day. And even if those were, you know, good, healthy calories eating all day, providing food for your body just all day long means that there's never really any need to tap into your stored fat. But making matters worse, you're getting these insulin spikes all day. And when you repeat this for years and years and years, you eventually become insulin resistant, which is just the point where your cells require more insulin to listen to the, the signal that, the, you know, the pancreas is trying to give them by releasing insulin. And, you know, their insulin's present all the time, so, you know, it, it starts to be reduced to a low murmur instead of a yell, and it requires more and more insulin to get that job done. At that point, you've lost what's called metabolic flexibility, and metabolic flexibility is your body's ability to easily adjust back and forth to switch back and forth between using glucose or using fatty acids at the mitochondria of your cell. And once that's happened, you, your body will start to think that glucose is the only food source. So every time that insulin and glucose falls, you don't have any energy and you're starving. And that, your body's going, where's the food? You know, and you have food. The pantry's full on your buns and thighs. You've got those in your stomach. You've got this, you know, the, the, the fatty acids you should be running on because those are supposed to be your batteries, not warehouses that we just get more and more full on a regular basis as we, as we get all these cravings and go rushing out to get more glucose. So cravings, in a nutshell, are your body telling you we need more glucose because we can't remember how to eat anything else. So getting to a more normal level of glucose consumption can sometimes be tough on people 
and paleo does not inherently apply a macronutrient ratio. It's not, you know, people will say something blah, blah, paleo and other low-carb diets. Paleo doesn't have to be low-carb. I eat a, a relatively high-carb version of paleo from time to time. But when you get off of the standard American diet level of carbohydrates, for a lot of people that is going to be lower carbohydrate. And if you've got a fat loss goal, you might even have to push it a little bit lower than that purposely by taking some of the starches out, you know, and some of the fruit and things like, you know, sweet potatoes and butternut squash and yams and those kinds of things, uh, taking those out so you can push the envelope for a while and force your body to remember that it's okay to use fatty acids and especially stored fatty acids as energy at the mitochondria, and that can make you miserable for a couple of days. You get what's called low-carb flu, and you'll you'll be a little, uh, maybe a little groggy. Maybe like you, if you find yourself reading, you'll end up reading the same paragraph a couple times because you just can't focus. It goes away though, and when it goes away, a couple of days later, you feel like a million bucks. Um, and so, in large part, when people just remove the grains from their diet, it ends up pretty dramatically reducing their caloric intake, unless they're somebody that eats a lot of sugar in which case both of those things will probably need to be removed, but you end up with, you know, considerably lower carbohydrates than what you were eating before, and with a fat loss goal, you push that envelope a little harder without those starches, and that's really all it takes. Like, I don't I don't really do a whole lot of combining of foods. I mean, obviously, if you consume more fat with your, with your glucose, you can tend to slow down the absorption of virtually everything, and that's just a digestion process, but, um, and fiber tends to do the same thing, but Overall, I think when you just choose the right foods, you accidentally end up there. You don't um, – you, your carbs come down by accident from where they were compared to that day that I just laid out for you. Gotcha. So you, you're basically balancing your metabolic flexibility by balancing your diet, basically. Yeah, yeah. Your metabolic flexibility comes back when you spend a prolonged period of time eating like a human being instead of eating like a Westerner. So, um, and you, and what, what would that? you say would be like a good kind of uh, blueprint, if you will, for that, for eating like a human being to balance metabolic flexibility? I, I think when somebody first comes into – I'll give you the basics right here. When somebody first comes, comes to me, what I want to see them do is on the exercise side, I want, to, I want them to, to – if they've been doing a bunch of craziness in their past, I pretty much want them to quit doing anything except maybe walking and some lifting. But if somebody's really badly metabolically broken, like this is just a cardio junkie, I'm going to tell them that they need to go get their diet right, and I can help them with that. But I want them to quit exercising altogether for a month or two, and that just blows their minds, and it's usually really, really hard for them. But they, they need to let their body heal a little bit. If they're not, they haven't been doing a lot of crazy exercise, then about three days a week I'm going to get them lifting heavy and walking, a, a lot, like four or five, six days a week, maybe, maybe all seven. Um, but lifting three days a week and, uh, and maybe even a little bit of metabolic conditioning where they're doing really short duration, you know, high-intensity interval training or sprint-type work, but really short duration, high-intensity, you know, five to ten minutes um, working really hard along with their lifting. And then on the food side, I'm going to have them eat mostly meat and fibrous vegetables and, uh, and you know, limit fruit and limit starches. And if that sounds like I just reduced your diet down to hardly anything, then you haven't seen Sarah Fragoso's cookbooks because she just has she has three of them now. And there's tons of other people out there that are producing cookbooks too, but obviously I have to promote my, my partner, my partner in crime. But 
there's tons of recipes out there that fall neatly in the category of meat and fibrous vegetables on the fat loss side of paleo. There is no need to get bored. If you're bored, you're not looking for reasons to not be bored. So um, you uh, you start there, and then you leave everything just like that for a couple of months. Obviously, working on sleep and stress helps too, but once you get these basic components into place, you leave it alone for at least two months. Three months, four months might even be better. You don't try to change anything. The hard part about that is you're going to have to shake off the mentality that two weeks of dieting should put you back in your high school genes long enough for you to go to your high school reunion before you gain it back by the following weekend. So you've got to shake this off and realize we're trying to get really, really healthy. You leave it alone for a couple of months, and then you'll have some data to work with. From there, there's all kinds of different things you can do. You can, you can try some intermittent fasting. You can try some carb cycling. You can move uh, your, your carb, the majority of your carbs to post-workout, on-workout days and keep your other days relatively low carb. You can toy with calories a little bit, you know, 100 at a time. And any individual change you make, you make only that one change, and then you give it at least another month to see what's going to come out of it while you try to control as many other confounding variables as you can. So coming into paleo and immediately going as low as car- carb as you possibly can, doing intermittent fasting on day one, um, starting an insane exercise regimen where you're doing something that looks like CrossFit four or five days a week, and um, you know not changing your sleeping patterns, uh, and reducing calories, uh, all, all of these things all at once, first off, you have no idea what, what actually worked, and maybe it was just one of those things, but you're putting yourself through hell with all of these other things as you throw everything at, at your body with this shotgun approach. But uh, over and above that, you're, you, you, you don't, you're not giving your body enough time to adapt to any one of these new stimulus long enough to see what's going to work in what order. So even if it does take a, a, a few of these things before you, you finally start really moving to, in the direction of, of uh, peak health, your impatience is, is you know, robbing you of good data that you could use to try to get there in a really healthy fashion without freaking your body out, causing massive amounts of stress, and maybe undoing all of your goals before three weeks from now you go tell all your friends that paleo doesn't work. So right. does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you you can't improve something that you aren't tracking. I mean, that's that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people are making multiple changes at once, and you know they they don't know what's going on. You know, and you can't really move forward if you're juggling a bunch of things at once. That makes perfect sense. Um, you t- right. you you're really a proponent of obviously uh, you know building muscle and and um, having that ability for kind of functionality and strength and whatnot. But are there any kind of counterintuitive or other reasons for building muscle that, uh, as far as the health side goes, uh, I mean, because a lot of, you know, working CrossFit, I mean, that's, that's intense stuff, uh, high-intensity high interval training, stuff like that. What are the kind of health benefits, long-term benefits to building muscle and, and uh, athletic capability? Well, for one, we, uh, we tend to see muscle mass as a pretty strong um, correlate to uh, long life um, centenarians, people live to be over 100, uh, one, of the, one of the major uh, uh, things they have in common tends to be a, a, an increased rate of muscle mass for where they should be at their age. They, and this, this is not across the board, but it's, it's usually a pretty strong common denominator. 
Um, and then, um, and then uh, there's also the hormonal response to, uh, to to training with you know lifting lifting weights. There's a hormonal response that releases growth hormone. Growth hormone will keep you lean, keep your skin looking good, keep muscle mass on you, keep your your hair looking great. I mean, it's really the fountain of youth. Um, I have you know those if you're in you know the Hollywood area and you're driving around, you see these uh, you know and, and I'm in most places in the country. I'm picking on Hollywood, but like this, uh, you find some place that's that's stereotypically um, uh, super uh, uh, concerned with with image, and you end up with uh, these these clinics around these anti-aging clinics, and that those those treatments are generally growth hormone treatments. They're you know, you're getting growth hormone injections or something that's supposed to cause you to produce more growth hormone, which is, in that case, probably a, mostly a scam. Um, and uh, it's just because growth hormone, when, when, you, when you're releasing as much of your own growth hormone as you possibly can, you are, um, you're, you're staying strong and lean and, uh, and, and youthful. And so uh, lifting heavy weights is one of, the, one of the very, very few things that does that. Uh, High-intensity interval training can do it too, but... Um, I'm not a big fan of the way CrossFit has, has taken the direction CrossFit has taken high intensity interval training. The research all shows high intensity interval training at it, you know very short uh, duration, very high intensity. Things like uh, when Izumi Tabata in 1996 did the Tabata intervals, and he had you know, 20 seconds of maximum effort and 10 seconds of rest for a total of eight rounds. Um, we took studies like that that showed that high intensity interval training was great. And we turned high-intensity interval training into, well, CrossFit turned it into 20, 30, 40, sometimes hour-long, you know, 60-minute um, bouts uh, where you're switching back and forth between multiple exercises. And uh, at the end of the day, really all that's doing is, you know, you're trying to, to prove your machismo against the person next to you. You're not, you know, we've lost all the health benefits of this, and it sure, surely isn't supported by the research. The research does never, ever looks like that so um uh but the the, the benefit uh, also muscle mass is, is you know it's thermogenic all by itself it it having more muscle mass means you're running a bigger engine means that sitting at rest you're using more calories throughout your day uh so muscle mass will absolutely help people burn burn fat um if uh you know for the ladies i i made a valiant effort in my book if you haven't read the book it's uh check it out it i took three women uh two of them i put in the book one of them i put on a blog post on everyday paleo um and uh i these three women who trusted me <laughs> thankfully and for a three-month period i did everything shy of drugs to try to get these women as big as I possibly could over a three-month period. I used every trick that I know of as a trainer. We increased their calories. We had them training exactly like bodybuilder, female bodybuilders. We took out all of the huffing and puffing that they did in their exercise, even in their warm-ups. Um, we controlled the, the time between their sets. We, I mean, I meticulously applied every effort I could to making these women as big as I possibly could could for three months and the before and after pictures are in the book um there's very little change if anything they look better leaner um and uh so the point of that was that can women bulk up yeah they may be able to but they're not going to be able to do it by accident you are not going to suddenly one day wake up and go oh my god i'm too big 
because a three-month intensive period with my knowledge, not yours, uh, picking on anybody that's listening to this, but um, I've been doing this a long time, and I know what to do to make these things happen, and I could not bulk these three women up, and you've never seen an Oprah show in which there was somebody sitting on a stage crying, saying, I didn't listen, and I got too big, and now I look like a man. You know, without drugs, it never, ever happens. Stop being afraid of something you've never one time seen. You've never, ever seen a woman bulk up by accident. You've only seen women do it through unbelievable amounts of effort and usually changing their own moral profile. And so the, thing, the deal is, to back to your question, is that that muscle mass is probably the one thing that makes it the easiest for women in the future from there forward to control their body fat. Uh, when you've got a, when you're running a stronger engine, a bigger engine, you can you can eat up more of that fat. You can require more of a need for your stored body fat during your exercise, actually during EPOC, which is excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. So you're not actually losing fat during exercise, but what you're creating for the next 24 to 48 hours, mostly in the first 24 hours, um, of, is where you'll you'll lose the most fat and muscle mass dramatically increases that. Somebody with a really low muscle mass will not be able to, to create as much EPOC as somebody with higher muscle mass. So um, hugely valuable. I, you don't you you need muscle, and if if that sounds like thirty words to you, then please go read some research. Read my book. Look at the effort that that the the women that have muscle mass are putting into it. Um, I think I've said before, in, in maybe in other interviews, but. If I was a female bodybuilder and I was really big and, 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 you know, just jacked, carrying tons of muscle, I would feel like I would just want to walk around all day beating up women that are scared of gaining muscle because I would be like, you know, I eat more in one meal than you eat all day. I live like a monk. I alter my hormonal profile with drugs, which risks me losing some of my femininity just for my sport, and you think this is going to happen to you by accident. I would be so mad all day long that women would think that they could do what I had done by accident when I had to work so hard to make this happen. Yeah, I think as far as uh, building muscle mass, HGH is a huge benefit because as we age, that declines, and that definitely is one of the you know biggest factors in, in keeping our youth and, and longevity and that kind of thing. Uh, I saw a video of you online with uh, Sean Croxton, and you talked about how there was a study where people will use their weaker arm or their weaker hand to like open doors and do things like that. And it helps with them with their addictions and cravings and whatnot. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. In, in willpower research that I've done, I, I, um, the last couple of years have really taken me down the, the road of psychology because I've realized that there's a, that this is a psychology game way more than it's a physical game. I mean, like I just, it's, Eating right and moving right is really, really simple when it's methodical right. for people. So we would see people come into the gym and they, um, just slightly getting off the subject here, people would come into the gym and they would be, you know, you'd ask them what their goals are and they would be pointing at parts of their body and pinching things and they just have desperation in their face and they just, it's crystal clear that they just hate this body that they're in and they'll do anything to escape it. And we would just watch those people struggle and oftentimes fail. Um, you know, more than 50% of the time fail and like 95% of the time really struggle. And, uh, and th then, then people would come into the gym, this, this other group, they would come in 
and you'd ask them what their goals were, and they would basically explain to you how they love their body, and their body deserves better than what they've been giving it. And those people would get results so fast it would make everybody's head spin. And then that first group that hates their body would come to this second group and say, wow, you look so great. What size pants are you wearing? You're so small. How did you lose so much weight? And the first group would almost be irritated. The second group would almost be irritated. They'd be like, you know, I have a huge deadlift. I don't take any medications anymore. I finally sleep well. My migraines are gone. I can work in my garden again. I've got this gigantic list of these amazing things that happen to me, and all you want to talk about is how I look. Yeah, it's pretty cool that I'm down down a pant size or two or whatever. I look great. That's all good. But, I mean, that looking better didn't improve the qual- my quality of life or my vitality, anything compared to this other gigantic list. So we get people this perspective change hopefully right in the beginning and and that that's a psychology game that's a game where people like it, it everybody's doing the same thing like the people that are that are love their bodies and are just giving their bodies everything their body needs those are people that are doing all of this without any desperation and without any emotion they're just methodically following the, the footprints that we we draw on the ground they're just, you know, place your foot here, place your foot here. And the other group has all of this desperation and they're still hearing, you know, people's voices in their head in the past that have told them they were fat, you know, bad boyfriends or even girlfriends, whatever, you know, the, the guys do this stuff too, um, you know, uh, bad parents, whatever. And they're, um, or they've got, you know, uh, a relationship with food that sends them running to food when they've, when they've got, uh, you know, had a rough day. That inner, that little voice in their in their head is just awful to them. They get up in the morning and they're standing in front of the mirror, you know, brushing their teeth or getting ready to get in the shower or whatever, and that voice is just slinging insults at them. And they don't have the ability to tune it out and realize that that little voice is not them. That they don't have to identify with it. They don't have to own it. Um, and so. I really got to looking into the psychology because I was realizing that my data had been spot on for a long time. Why weren't some people getting results? Why were some people still so adamant at blocking themselves from getting results? Then I started working with a uh, psychologist named uh, Robert Beeswas Diener, and his father is Ed Diener, who is the uh, 25th most psycho- uh, cited psychologist in all of all time, you know, Freud being number one. So um, Ed Diener is, you know, one of the biggest names in psychology, and his son is no joke. He's amazing and probably going to end up there himself. And we've been working together for, uh, I guess, maybe a year now, something like that. And uh, we just have these brainstorming sessions. And he got me really into looking at, at willpower research and um, and where, uh, where uh, things like motivation come from. And I think that a lot of us tend to think that willpower is a character trait. And it's um, really not. It's, it's measurable in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, they can... They can uh, deplete it in, in, in laboratory studies. They can watch uh, willpower get depleted on a subject that's completely unrelated to another, you know, change subjects, and then watch people, you know, uh, lose willpower. Like, for example, you know, you're wandering through the mall trying not to spend your life savings, and then you eat every piece of crap in the food court. Or you can show men uh, pictures of scantily clad women and sell them more electronics. You know, um, these are... These are uh, situations in which, you know, the, like the, the uh, researchers say, the willpower, the prefrontal cortex in, in regards to willpower can be uh, fatigued like a muscle. 
that that analogy comes up over and over again in the research. So what that means is that, um, you know, uh, we're kind of, we may be doing it wrong when it comes to paleo uh, in that we are notorious for uh, like 30-day challenges and or even 21-day challenges. And, uh, you know, I have a, there's one REP life at my online training community. There's a 21-day plan. I don't guide a ton of people towards it uh, too much anymore. But basically what we're saying is, you know, everything in your world is at, at odds with what your body expects and the way we eat and move and sleep and deal with stress. And, you know, our, our hunter-gatherer bodies, bodies don't get any of this. So what we want you to change is absolutely everything. Three, two, one, go. You know, and people are going, yeah, I'm doing my, my third 30-day challenge. And I'm, I was going, God, what do you mean your third? What, this is insane. Why isn't this working? And it all comes back to this willpower stuff. You get up in the morning to an alarm clock, which takes willpower, and you drive down the road uh, not following somebody to work and beating them up after they cut you off. That requires willpower. Uh, most of us go to jobs. Well, most other people, I'm very fortunate in this aspect, but most people go to jobs that they may like or dislike, whatever the case may be, but they probably wouldn't go there if they didn't need money. So it's something that is um, is doable because they have bills to pay, but, you know, they don't necessarily love it, and there's a lot of people out there that just outright hate their jobs. I think that's the majority. Um, and, you know, then you deal with people in a, in, a, in a job situation that you wouldn't normally ever put yourself around, and you have to deal with them on a regular basis. And then, you know, we all have relationships, and sometimes those are strenuous, and we have bills, and we have all this other stupid society stuff that has nothing to do with our survival. And then it's no wonder that at the end of the day you come home and you eat a tub of ice cream every night after dinner, even though that morning you woke up fully with the intention of trying to get your yourself um, fit and healthy once and for all because you're sick of crying when you stand in front of the mirror. So um, the willpower research is saying that, um, you know, it, the the uh, prefrontal cortex is fatigable, and there's a good example. I think I said this someplace else recently, so forgive me if you've heard it, but one really good example is they brought uh, these subjects into a laboratory individually, and they um, they sat them down at a table, and uh, 50% of these people, they, at the laboratory, they just baked chocolate chip cookies, and the whole lab smells like chocolate chip cookies. And 50% of these people were allowed to eat as much of the chocolate chip cookies as they want. And uh, the other 50% had to abstain from eating the chocolate chip cookies that sat right in front of them, but they were allowed to eat all the radishes they want. And they told these people they were doing some sort of taste and memory study or something like that. So about 15 minutes of this goes by, and they move all the food out of the way, and they tell them they're going to do a completely unrelated study, and they bring out these geometric shapes, and they ask them to, to trace these without letting their pen or pencil leave the paper. They don't tell them that it's impossible. And so the group that eats all the chocolate chip cookies they want spends an average of 18 minutes working on this before they finally give up, and the other group only spends nine minutes before they give up. Well, eating chocolate chip cookies or not eating chocolate chip cookies and tracing geometric shapes are completely unrelated subjects that couldn't possibly in the minds of these people have been correlated at all, but these people had already used up a bunch of their willpower before they were asked to do something else that required willpower, which was to stay on task even though this task is getting frustrating. So you can see how the odds are stacked against us when we go out into our day-to-day life trying to make too big of changes. And the, the study that you brought up was they took these uh, alcoholics and cigarette smokers that were trying to uh, quit, 
and they took 50, they had 50% of them uh, for one week just simply opened all doors that they came to with their non-dominant hand. This is a really easy activity. It didn't require uh, any, it, didn't, it wasn't stressful. It was something they would think about for a couple of seconds, maybe like one second, and then move on. But what they were doing is they were willfully coming to a situation in which they had two choices. They were willfully choosing the more difficult choice, and then they were moving on with their day. And they saw something like a 70% or 65%, I don't know what the numbers were, but it was really crazy numbers, uh, increase in their ability to abstain from cigarettes and alcohol, even though what they were doing was completely unrelated to their addiction. So it's a matter of finding ways to train your willpower, which you also can do quite effectively through meditation or mindfulness, training your willpower as if you would train a muscle. Don't overstress it, but apply tiny little bits of acute stress to make it stronger, which is exactly what we do in the gym when we grow bigger you know, biceps, for example. So right, just focus on the, the small things, constant, never-ending improvement, and just keep kind of compounding that, and it'll get easier. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then don't take on too much. Take you know, keep your goals really, really small and manageable and take you know, I'm a big fan of baby steps these days. I just love baby steps. If if you're if you if you have a food addiction and you turn to food for for um your 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 comfort and uh you, you really eat poorly and you wanna change, maybe you need to just start with breakfast or maybe you need to start with sugar in just your vice. Like just getting rid of that ice cream at night and not even worrying about that Starbucks caramel macchiato right now. But it's not human nature to make small goals like that. We, I wrote a post for Everyday Paleo called Changing or Escaping, and there's also scientific literature that says that most of us set gigantic goals. And it's because when you're standing in the mirror in the morning and you're beating yourself up, when you finally set a goal, you put your foot down and say, I'm going to change today. And you do that, you identify with what you see yourself as you know, becoming, what you're going to be in the future. And for a little while, you escape that nasty little voice in your head. So it makes sense that we all want to set the biggest possible goal because for a little while, it feels the best, even though it sets us up for more failure. So you've got right. to fight that human nature and set whatever goals you can actually attain and inch your way to it, even if it takes you, you know, three or four months to get to solid paleo. Then remember when you get there, that's when the timer starts for when you need to do a couple of months without changing anything. Right. I'm glad you talked about the psychology of, you know, making decisions and willpower because so many people are doing that exact thing. They're looking in the mirror saying, today I'm going to change, today it's going to be different. And then they stumble and fall and they have ice cream or whatever and then they, you know, they beat themselves up over it. So they lose their confidence and their, you know, their uh, willpower is fatigued and, and that kind of thing. So just taking micro steps and kind of realigning yourself to make better decisions uh, ultimately leads to uh, a healthier and, and stronger you. So that makes, uh, you know, that's that's great advice. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Yeah, um, and the value that we put on cheats, like like the, we, we give them like this, this huge power over us like it's it's crazy how you know people will will eat a bad bite of food and so that has to become a whole bad meal and then that whole bad meal means that today is shot and if today's shot and it happens to be friday then you know it's the whole whole weekend i'll start again <laughs> on monday and then on yeah. monday you have a you have a little tiny period of time to get this right again on monday or the whole week shot and pretty soon you're you're you can't even hardly remember that you were ever doing this. You know, it's been so long that you've been off the wagon because there's some, you know, you know, ridiculous arbitrary amount of time 
that is associated with the fact that you right at this exact moment happen to have a, a mouthful of bad food, which therefore automatically means that the next mouthful has to be terrible too. And in reality, every moment is a brand new moment. I said in the book that, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, eating a bad, eating bad food or you just ate something bad, as soon as you're done chewing, that event is over. <laughs> it's, it's gone. Right. It doesn't. It, this doesn't imply anything for the next moment in your life. You don't. You're not tied to any uh, any decision now. You're. You didn't commit to anything. You ate something bad. What's the next bite going to be? You get to make a new decision. You know. So, mm-hmm. stop giving your your cheats uh, the power to just rob. You know your your the entirety of your goals. Just take. You know everything is gone and out the window now because. You, you had a, a, a Snickers bar? No, that's that's ridiculous. I'm not. I mean, I'm not giving you license to cheat and saying, "Hey, go out there and eat some crap because it'll all be okay a moment later." I'm saying, if you do stumble and fall, there's no point in just beating the snot out of yourself for you know a weeks at a time until you finally can get the courage to start all over again. You didn't end anything. Nothing stopped. There isn't a line drawn in the sand that said, "Well, you were paleo two minutes ago, but now you blew it, you idiot." You know, just Stop telling yourself those things and just pick it up and move forward. Just keep on trucking. You're still a human that wants to be healthier, and now you're making good decisions again. Just just keep going. At the end of the day, you are worth improving. And if you can't figure that out and get that through your head, there is no trainer out there who can give that to you. There's nobody that can tell you. There's nobody that can give you a reason. Basically, I'm just a tool. You're going to come to me with a nail that you need driven in, and I am nothing more than a hammer, but I cannot give you a reason to drive that nail. I hope that makes sense. But um, we'll stop robbing yourself of your motivation because of little tiny slip-ups. Yeah, and I think that a great point, too, to add to that is, you know, the self-inflicted stress from your, you know, past decisions. So I think that's a great point as well. You know, it's just if it's the past, let it go. You know, be in the moment right now. Be mindful and make the best decision for you, you know, at this point moving forward. Um, so I really appreciate your time for this interview, Jason. Uh, where can our listeners find you? What's your website? Are you on Facebook, uh, YouTube? Where are you at? Yeah, I am on Facebook. Um, just look me up, Jason Seib, S-E-I-B. Um, I am uh, also on Twitter. And uh, I'm, I write for Everyday Paleo. I'm actually, Sarah and I are actually the Everyday Paleo team now. She's made it very clear to me that uh, – that uh, I, I need to step up and be partner there. <laughs> and I do the seminar everyday paleo workshops around the country with her. I'm actually, uh, I don't know when you're going to end up posting this, but very shortly after this, uh, we hang up here. I'm going to uh, be heading to Denver. And then um, we uh, also do the everyday paleo, or the paleo lifestyle and fitness podcast. Uh, you can find that on iTunes. We, it's been killing it. We've, I think we've got about a million and a half listeners on that. As early as just a couple of weeks ago, we were ranked at, at number two right behind Jillian Michaels a few times. Um, everybody really seems to be enjoying that, so they can find me there. And um, uh, we also have a, a site called eplifefit.com, which stands for Everyday Paleo Lifestyle and Fitness, and it's online training, uh, exercise training. We do coaching through video submission, and um, and we have the extensive site there, extensive forums. Uh, so if you're a person that you know you can't find a good trainer near you because that's kind of a tough road, 
uh, I, I don't know how to recommend good trainers to people. I do a, do my best in the book to try to break that down, but it's really hard to find a decent trainer. Um, so, uh, you know, that's our, our answer to that. And I think that's it. Um, I, in obviously my book, the paleo coach, that's my heart and souls on those pages. Uh, there'll probably be more for me in the future, but, um, you can check that out on, uh, it's, you know, it should be in your local bookstores and on Amazon. And if you just go to Amazon and check out the reviews, there's uh I I think I I have a 4.9 uh star review on on out of 5 on Amazon right now with over 200 200 reviews 224 I think reviews so um it's been very very well accepted and I think it's helping a lot of people and it, it's broken into the sections think eat and move and that think section I think is what's going to what's helping people the most um uh, and then good information and all of it but uh getting your perspective right and understanding what we're really doing here. It's not a rah-rah book, but it, it will, you know, call you on the carpet and make sure that you understand exactly what you're supposed to be doing every day if you're really trying to get health, healthy and fit. And I think that's about it. I think those are, uh, with, with those areas, you know, come follow me on Facebook. I try to put good information up, up there on a regular basis and uh, testimonials and things. So um, awesome. I, I, think, I think that gives people a lot of me. Appreciate it. Yeah, the book was great. It was, it was practical, simple, to the point, and I it was a, it was an easy read, so anyone anyone can read it. And I'll I'll link up the book in your website in the show notes as well. Um, once again, great. thanks a lot for your time, and uh, have a great trip to Denver. Absolutely, this was a lot of fun, and uh, I'd love to do it again with you sometime. Just let me know. For sure, man. Take care. Have an awesome day. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Bye. And we'll wrap the show with that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks a lot for tuning in today's Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. If you aren't already subscribed in iTunes, head over to your iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer, search Healthy, Wild, and Free in the iTunes store and just click the subscribe button. And when you do that, you're going to get, noti- you're going to get basically notified with each new podcast update. So every time I do a new podcast, it'll load in, in the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast in your iTunes account. So you can listen to it on your computer, on your iPad, on your uh, smartphone, on your iPod, uh, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, in the car, you can listen to the podcast. Also, make sure to go to HealthyWildAndFree.com and join the Facebook community. I post videos, articles, and all the interviews there as well. And make sure to join the email newsletter at HealthyWildAndFree.com and uh, you'll receive the interviews and a free book as well by for subscribing to the email newsletter. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Have an awesome day.